like to ask a question or two as we begin. Do we recognize the significance of the times in which we're living? Do we recognize the significance of the times in which we are living? Do we understand the incredible importance of our calling? And both of these questions are related to each other. I think most of us understand, and many people even outside the church understand, the significance prophetically of what is taking place in the Middle East. Iraq appears to be turning into chaos. Iran is making all kinds of noise about going nuclear. They're talking about wiping Israel out, pushing them into the sea. There's an article in the paper this morning that Jordan is wanting to go nuclear. Egypt has announced they want to go nuclear because of what's happening in Iran. What we're seeing is a buildup of tension and potential destruction in the Middle East. Many people also realize what's happening in Europe. The Europeans coming together. They recognize a more confident and resurgent Germany that's determined to lead Europe. And they recognize the significance of that. We're going to see King of the South and the King of the North emerge one of these days in that part of the world. We're also seeing an increasingly vocal pope that has challenged the Islamic world. Recently, he talked about the importance of keeping Sunday, and he's reaching out to other churches. Many people understand the prophetic significance of these events. We're seeing turbulent weather, devastating weather conditions all around the world. And many scientists today are beginning to realize and speak out more vocally about these things, that these trends that we're seeing in the weather appear to be definitely related to human alterations of the environment. And this global warming is not going to go away. It's going to increase. Now, these are conditions that we do not control, you and I. We can't control them. We can't change them. But what I want to talk about today are some prophetic situations that you and I can control, that you and I can alter and change, and that we are going to change in the coming kingdom of God. We are living in a period of time when the pillars of society, the pillars of the civilized world are being attacked and being destroyed from within. A belief in God, a belief in the Bible, a belief in religion, belief in marriage, and a belief in the value of the family. These things are being undermined today, being ridiculed today. People are laughing at these things today. I wanted to read you a couple of quotes from a book entitled Why Marriage Matters. It's talking about the significance of marriage and the family to society. These things are quite sobering. The book is entitled Why Marriage Matters. The author is a Glenn T. Stanton. He's a researcher in this particular field. He makes some quotes, but he also quotes other authorities. He said, The family in the Western world has been radically altered, some say almost destroyed, by events of the last three decades. He wrote this about 1997. So basically in the last 30 years, he said, we are seeing in the Western world the family 
being radically altered and almost totally destroyed. This is a statement by Nobel uh, laureate Gary Becker in the first line of his celebrated book entitled A Treatise on the Family. The face of the family in America has indeed undergoing a, undergone a radical transformation. We've become a nation of family relativists. Whatever. Whatever goes. Define it whatever way you want. With no clear and common idea of what family relationships ought to look like. We're losing our concept of what a family is and what it ought to look like. We are willing to accept any configuration that presents itself in sincerity. Oh, we love each other, even though we're of the same sex. You've got to accept us. You've got to be tolerant. This leaves us with no common script for the family. No common script for the family. Another quote, page or two on. Quoting Professor Lawrence Stone, a distinguished family historian from Princeton University, offers a historical perspective on recent divorce trends. He explains, the scale of marital breakdowns in the West, I think about this historically, the, the times in which we're living today, the scale of marital breakdowns in the West since 1960 has no historical precedent what we're seeing happening today has no historical precedent. There has been nothing like it for the last 200 or 2,000 years, probably longer. We are living in significant times. Another quote, a little bit further on. Distinguished demographer Kingsley Davis correctly laments that no, at no time in history with the possible exception of imperial Rome, has the institution of marriage been more problematic than it is today? In other words, we are living in very significant times. Another author makes this statement. The family has been slowly coming apart for more than 100 years. The problem is merely becoming more pronounced and impossible to ignore. If left unchecked, it will certainly lead to a disastrous end. This is talking about the times in which we are living. One final comment by Professor David Papineau. He says, if the family trends of recent decades are extended into the future, just looking out a couple of more decades, the result will not only the result will be not only growing uncertainty within marriage, but the gradual elimination of marriage in favor of casual liaisons, hooking up, oriented to adult expressiveness and self-fulfillment. Well, I just felt like it. I just thought this was okay. The problem with this scenario is that children will be harmed. Adults will probably no longer will probably be no happier, and the social order could collapse. The social order could collapse. Brethren, we're watching the deliberate destruction, the deliberate demolition of one of the fundamental pillars of society, of civilized life. The destruction of the family, destruction of marriage. 
And in place, we are promoting and naively accepting values that are undermining and destroying one of the pillars of civilized society. This is the world we're living in today. Do we understand the times in which we are living? Do we realize what is happening to our culture and to our society and to us today? You know, some of the things that are destroying the family, this liberalization of divorce, well, we just didn't, we just didn't <laughs> think we want to live together any longer. So we decided to get a divorce. We're watching things like that since the 1960s. They're talking about free love, free sex, just with whom, whenever, wherever, just as long as you feel good about it. These things are undermining society today, undermining the stability of society today. There's an article in the paper again this morning talking about the, uh, the arrogance of legal abortion, written by a lawyer here in Charlotte. He was just saying that uh, a group of liberal judges and a number of physicians began pushing for legalized abortion back in the 70s. He says, they have ignored the permanent psychological trauma abortion inflicts on mothers They have discarded traditional medical ethics and chucked the old law. He says, we're living in a culture of death spawned by arrogance. It will be only reversed by something in short supply, which is humility in the face of God's creation. So we're going to have to answer for some of these things. We're going to be reaping the rewards and the results of some of these decisions that we're going to be seeing. But the questions I ask in the beginning, do we understand the significance of the times in which we are living and how these things dovetail into Bible prophecies that are also coming to pass today? Turn back to Hosea. Turn back to the book of Hosea. Hosea was written to the northern kingdom of Israel before its demise. The ministry of Hosea stretched roughly from about 760 to about 720 B.C. Hosea began prophesying when the the nation of northern Israel was at the height of its prosperity. He began his ministry at the height of the nation's prosperity. He ended his ministry when the nation went into captivity. He prophesied for 40 years. The end of his prophecies came with the downfall of the nation. In Hosea chapter 4, just notice what he was talking about. The nation of northern Israel lasted about 200 years. The United States is just a little bit older than 200 years. It's interesting what happens in 200 years. Hosea addresses his concerns in chapter 4, verse 1, to the nation. Hear the word of the Lord you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. This is what is wrong, God says. This is why things are going to happen. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Same thing is happening today in our countries. By swearing, lying, killing, and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint. Marriages were going down the tubes. Family relationships were going down the tubes. Therefore, the land will mourn 
and everyone that dwells therein will waste away. With the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Environmental problems will also follow when we disregard the laws of God. But down in verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people, he says, are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Many people look at divorce today as, well, it solves our problems. No, it doesn't. They just begin when that happens. There's been studies done, uh, 25-year studies on divorce and what happens to the kids, little kids. They're angry. they're, 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 They're frustrated. They're hurt. Adolescents have a whole set of problems that are characteristic. You know, boys become more rebellious. Girls become more rebellious. They both become more sexually active. They do less well in school. Suicide rates are higher among children of divorce. These are the consequences why God says, I hate it. It shouldn't happen. It's being promoted today and accepted today. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because they've rejected, because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. They will suffer because you have turned your back on God and his laws and his instructions. Turn, if you would, to Malachi then, chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi's ministry was with the Jews that came back from Babylon. It's a post-captivity book. They came back from captivity. They understood why they went into captivity, but they forgot those lessons when they came back. They began doing things that were wrong, breaking the laws of God. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. says, and this is the second thing that you do. Malachi is holding out their sins, their problems. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why aren't you accepting our offerings? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. But he did not make them one, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. God designed marriage. God wants that marriage to be stable so children can be raised in a stable, loving environment. That's what his design is. That's what he wants. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. I guess today you could also say with the husband of your youth, because it goes around. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. There's another article in the paper today about a couple in New York City that are getting a divorce. And the judge had to say, build a wall down the middle of your house, (laughs) because neither one was going to move out. But they couldn't get along with each other. So the judge says, build a wall down the middle of the house. Here are two people that can't get along with each other in the same house. There's obviously a lot of reasons for those things. But God says he hates divorce because it covers one's garment with violence. Therefore, take heed to your spirit 
and do not deal treacherously with each other, doing things maliciously that hurt each other. Our forebears, our ancestors, created problems for themselves because they didn't follow the laws and instructions of God regarding marriage in the family. We are doing the same thing today, and we are going to reap the consequences if we're not careful, if we don't change. Notice just a couple of other scriptures, how this relates to our calling in Malachi Chapter 4, verse 4, which we heard in the sermonette. This is part of our calling. This is what we've been called to do. This is a prophecy that relates to us today. And the reason I gave those quotes and statistics describes the times in which we are living. And these verses explain how the times today are going to be changed and what we have an opportunity to prepare for. Verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Malachi is writing to Israelite peoples. Sadly, it's the Israelite nations that lead the world in divorce, that lead the world in premarital pregnancies, not the Islamic world, but the Israelite world are leading these statistics. We're not setting the example that we should. We're not setting the example that God called us to set. And we're going to reap the consequences of that. But we have been called to change the world, to turn the world right side up. Remember the law of Moses. It's in the law of Moses that we understand that we've been created male and female for reasons. That God is the author and the designer of the family. That's God who designed the roles in the family. These things were just not thought up by somebody taking drugs or something like that or theorizing or philosophizing God inspired the roles based on the way that he's created us remember the law of Moses my servant which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments the fine points that apply to our our lives today behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, focusing on the family, how to rebuild the family, how to restructure families so that they work. This is what we have been called to do and called to prepare to do. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Turn over to Matthew 17, verse 11. These are prophetic verses that apply to our mission, to our purpose as a church that apply to us as individuals to prepare for an incredible future where we are going to be able to change the direction the world is going, to begin rebuilding the foundations of a stable society. We're not here just to be part of a little church that comes and meets together on the Sabbath. We are here to literally begin to change the world, prepare to do that. If we can think big enough and see how it fits into the whole perspective of prophecy and the flow of history. Matthew 17, 11. Jesus is talking about the mission of this Elijah that would come. The church and the person that would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 11, Elijah truly is coming and will restore all things. 
will recapture true values. That was the theme of the church under Mr. Armstrong. We should never let that theme go. Each generation has got to recapture true values, incorporate and inculcate true values. If parents don't teach children the right values, those values are lost. And we have to explain the importance of these values. That's what I find interesting about this book, why marriage matters. Why it matters. It's historically significant. You destroy marriage, you destroy societies. They come apart. They won't hold together anymore. We have been called to restore true values in a very vital area. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about these verses are the pivotal verses in the Bible. Everything in the Bible pivots around these verses. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And Paul, Peter was actually speaking here in the temple. And he's talking to Jewish people there. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Change your life. Turn around. Go in a different direction. Embrace a different set of values. Focus your minds in a different direction. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Sins are living and acting contrary to the laws of God. And that is the direction our society is going today. People despise the laws of God, especially people in colleges and universities. Liberal theologians scoff at these things. And Peter is saying here, repent of these things. Change your life so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ. And Christ is going to return and with his saints is going to reign on this earth and reorient human beings to a totally different direction, whom the heavens must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. Until the time of the restoration of all things. You and I have been called to help restore all things, including how to build strong families. How do we build strong families? How do you recognize and repair dysfunctional families? These are challenges that we all need to understand, whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whatever the situation is. If we're going to become kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God, we're going to need to understand some of these fundamentals. How do you build strong families? How do you recognize and restore repair dysfunctional families? What are the qualities that healthy families have? What qualities do healthy families have in common? What qualities do troubled families not have? Excuse me. <laughs> what qualities uh, do healthy families have and what, are, what qualities are troubled families missing? If we can identify some of these things... It's going to be very helpful. What can we do? What can you do now to build stronger families? I've entitled the sermon, Traits of Healthy Families. Traits of Healthy Families. 
comes from a book entitled Traits of Healthy Families. I'm not being original here. But what's interesting is these traits of healthy families, the author of this book uh, sampled something like 550 individuals or 550 families, studied them to find out what qualities they had in common. And what is interesting is you've got them on the page in front of you. Many, in fact, most of these traits are based on biblical principles. Most or all of these traits are based on biblical principles. And part of our challenge as Christians today is to you know, sort the wheat from the chaff, to find out what is really valid and what is not valid. And one individual told me one time, said, why do you read books? Why don't you just read the Bible? Well, one of the reasons for reading books is to find practical information, and then you compare it with the Scriptures. And you can sort out the wheat from the chaff. There are all kinds of books on marriage and family. Not all of them are accurate. Not all of them are worthwhile reading. But you can pick out principles here and principles there. What I want to do is to go through these things today and understand or look at some of the things we need to understand in order to have strong, healthy families. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 for just a moment. You know, this is religion 101, Bible 101, basic theology. But in many uh, sociology departments today, these things are not even considered. Many people think this is ridiculous. It's silly. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, human beings, in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle and every creeping thing. So God created man, human beings, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. You know, we should be able to understand that. God created us male and female. We're different. You, know, you look in a mirror. Uh, we're different from each other. But we're not only different anatomically and biologically, we are different psychologically. We are different emotionally. We are different mentally. Now that is probably inciting some people today. What do you mean? We're all the same. No, we're not. You put 15 to 20 times the amount of testosterone in a male body than in a female body, <laughs> it's going to have tremendously different effects. You put eight or ten times the amount of female hormones in a female body, it's going to have very different effects. You know, when you study embryology, a little uh, fertilized egg, when it starts developing, you can't tell it whether it's going to be male or female for the first, I don't know, three or four months. But after that, it begins developing differently and will continue to develop differently because of the genetic components and because of the hormonal influences. We are different. Being male and female is not something that is sociologically determined. Well, you're a girl because you were made to wear dresses and play with dolls. You're a boy because you got to play with footballs and, and swords and uh, other types of things like that. That's ridiculous. That is totally ridiculous. 
But educated people believe some of these things today. God said he created us male and female. We are different physiologically. We're different emotionally. And if we're going to have strong, happy families, we need to understand that and understand these differences. First thing I want to look at is these basic needs of men and women. This comes from another very interesting book written by a you know, quote-unquote Christian psychologist had about 25 or 30 years' experience in marriage counseling. It's entitled His Needs, Her Needs, Willard Harley, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And he talks about men and women have basically you know, the same needs, but the priority of those needs are different. Just notice here quickly. Men's needs, sexual fulfillment, is one of the primary ones. And again, this comes from having 10 to uh, or 15 to 20 times the amount of testosterone in the human body. They're oriented differently. Notice the primary need of a woman is affection, not necessarily sexual fulfillment, but affection. Being valued, being loved, made to feel special. And most men don't really care if they're special or not. <laughs> as long as they are sexually fulfilled. <laughs> but just understanding basic things like this. You, know, you can't sit down and say, well, honey, you know, if you just thought more like I did, they're not going to think more like you do. And you need to understand that about each other. You know, I think one of the most interesting illustrations I've seen of this recently, both the boys were up here for Thanksgiving, had the grandkids together, three little girls and one little boy. Three, four, five, and six. Little boy was six. After dinner, the girl said, we want to watch a movie. So the little grandson said, he figured, well, he was the guest. He would go along with the movie they wanted to watch. And they wanted to watch a little animated movie entitled, I think it was The Prince and the Pauper. And some halfway through this movie, these little girls are dressed up in ballet things, and they're dancing all around. And about uh, five minutes into that scene, my grandson came up to me and says, Grandpa, he says, I'm getting a migraine. <laughs> he said, I, I can't watch this any longer. I've got to go ride a bike. <laughs> He's six years old. I watched my granddaughter, Scott's little girl, shook him up and start talking. She's waving her arms and so excited and so animated. And his brother sits there and just kind of, Scratches his head. You know, we are different. Duh. <laughs> and yet educated people today say, well, there's no difference. It's all sociological. It's just how you're socialized. No, it's not. There are fundamental basic differences. Your primary need for a man is sexual fulfillment. Primary need for a woman is affection. Affection, being loved, being cared for. Second primary need of men is recreational companionship. They want somebody to do things with them. Primary need for women is conversation. They want to talk to somebody. <laughs> they want someone to talk to them. And yet for many years, the stereotype of the ideal man was this strong, silent type, never said a word. It drives women up the, up the wall. 
you know, they want somebody to talk to them. And men, you need to learn how to convey, can communicate and talk. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Another interesting one, number three. 70% of men that were interviewed said they preferred their, pro- their spouse... Their <laughs> <laughs> preferred their spouse to be attractive, to look attractive. Only 40% of women said the same thing. So guys, it gives you a break. (laughs) But what it's saying is physical attractiveness is important to a man and a mate for to be physically attractive. So don't let yourselves go to pot and get a hairdo that's complimentary to you. Take care of yourself. And men really should do the same thing if you love your wife. But notice the third most important thing to a woman is not so much physical attractiveness of their husband, but honesty and openness. Is he honest? Is he open? Is he willing to talk about things? And girls, you need to recognize the difference between honesty and openness and somebody feeding you a line. They may be very honest and open, but they're feeding you a big line, and you need to be able to recognize that. A fourth difference. For men, they value domestic support, a peaceful home. Not the moment he walks in the door, Honey, do this! Honey, do that! Get those kids over here! Give them a break when he comes home. I was teaching one summer in Boston, and uh, I'd get up about 5.30 in the morning to drive into Boston, fight traffic and everything, teaches a number of classes, and one particular night I'd get home later. And I was really not real civil until I walked into the house, sat on the back deck for about 30 minutes, and just looked at the woods. (laughs) And after that, I was ready to deal with my kids and with my wife. (laughs) But I just needed some downtime to kind of recharge some batteries, and my wife understood that. Domestic support is important. Number four for a woman is financial support. You know, if she's going to get pregnant and raise kids and stay home, she wants somebody that will provide for her and not have her worried about, well, how are we going to pay this bill and what's going to happen and all these other things. You know, does the guy have a decent job? Does he pay bills on time? Is he responsible? And we could turn it around if you're already married. Are you a good provider? Are you responsible? These are things we need to prepare for. I've used this story before. That a young fellow came to me and met this girl in another church area, and boy, was really sharp, and we just want to get married. I said, you have a job. He just looked at me, blank stare. What does that have to do with it? <laughs> he wasn't ready to get married. He didn't understand what was involved. All he understood was his hormones. But their neurons have to be consulted. <laughs> Number five, men appreciate being admired. Do you admire the person that you're dating? Do you admire your husband? As husbands, what can you do to be admired? What fosters admiration? Number five for a woman is family commitment. Is this guy interested in me? And is he interested in children? Is he interested in being a husband? Is he preparing for that? Or does he have his mind on other things? You know, just understanding some of these fundamental differences will help build strong family relationships. 
You know, young boys need to be taught what it means to be a man, what it means to be masculine, what it means and, and how you prepare to be a husband and how you prepare to be a father. These things need to be passed on from generation to generation. And girls need to understand what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a homemaker, to turn a house into a home. These things are cultural values, but they're based on biblical principles. And societies that do not pass on these cultural things begin to come apart. And these things are happening today. Part of our challenge today and also in the coming kingdom of God is to show people how to turn things around, how to build strong families, how to build stable homes, how to produce normal, healthy children. And I'm talking about mentally healthy children. If we understand some of these basic differences and don't buy into these concepts, well, we're all the same, you know, and it really doesn't matter. It does matter. It really does matter. Let's look next to some of these traits of healthy families. Again, this comes from a study that looked at about 550 families and noticed the things that they had in common. Healthy families, stable families share qualities like this. You know, and as you're growing up, especially as young families, notice families that work. Notice families where the kids are happy and the wives are happy and the husbands are happy. And ask them, how'd you do it? <laughs> what is your secret? Please tell us how you've done these things. And let's just run down through these things on the handout, and I'll give you some scriptures to go along with it. Because these things are fundamental, but they're extremely important. Healthy families communicate, number one, and they listen. Communication between two people is called a dialogue when they both talk. When only one talks, it's called a monologue. <laughs> it's not communication. It's just a one-way uh, conveying of words. If we're going to communicate effectively, we've got to be able to talk and listen and know when to talk and know when to listen and know how to talk and how to listen. And if kids see their parents doing this effectively, then they will do it effectively. If they see one parent putting down the other parent, then they will put down each other. Healthy families communicate and they listen. Notice in Deuteronomy. Now you can do your own Bible study and come up with a number of other uh, scriptures that will tell you the same thing, that will support these observations. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is talking about the value of God's law to the Israelites and how God gave the Israelites his law to make them an example to the rest of the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen coming out of Egypt and God's intervention that God was real, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Teach them to your children. You know, sit down with your children, teach them Bible stories, teach them the principle that's in that Bible story. Help them become knowledgeable of what's in the scriptures. And many adults today have to do the same thing. They've been raised in homes where they've not been religious. They have to come to understand the content of the Bible. That is not just a collection of myths. 
It's not just a bunch of sentimental stories. We're dealing with fundamental principles upon which sound civilizations can be built. And you ignore these things, there will be consequences. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days uh, they live on the earth, and that they will teach their children. See, these values have got to be communicated from one generation to another. In uh, James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, maybe just jot it down in your notes, it talks about being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. In other words, listen carefully. Don't jump to conclusions and uh, don't let your emotions get involved. Be patient. Listen carefully. And if you want to avoid uh, misunderstandings, repeat back what a person says. Did you say, is this what you're saying? Is this what you really meant? So that you don't jump to conclusions. Did you really mean this? And then they say, well, yes, that's what I meant. Or no, that's not what I meant. Okay, what really did you mean? So that you can communicate effectively. Healthy families communicate and they listen. They listen to each other. They read body language and they recognize, you know, there's something wrong here. You're not acting like you usually do. Is there something wrong? Draw the person out. Communication is extremely important. A dialogue is important, not a monologue, but a dialogue. When parents deal with children, sometimes we want to talk too much and teach too much. Sometimes we need to ask, how are you feeling? What would you like to do? Do you understand? Second point, healthy families foster table time and conversation. These two things go together. In the Passover, we read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. How long does it take us to read that? About an hour or so. But here's an account of a meal that Christ had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He just didn't say, I'm going to die tomorrow and be resurrected in three days. See you later. No, he went over with them fundamentals of Christianity. He went over with them the importance of love, the importance of of forgiveness. He talked about Bible prophecies. He says, don't be worried when you see things becoming difficult. He had a whole series of things he wanted to go over with his disciples. They took time to talk about these things at the table. You You can do this at home, to take time to eat together and talk together. As the boys were growing up, we had a principle that they were home for dinner on Friday night where they didn't get a meal. They had to be home for dinner on Friday night where they didn't get a meal. So it was a family thing, and we didn't wind up scheduling a whole lot of other things on Friday night. My wife would have candles on the table and a special meal and so on, and we would talk about what happened through the day, what happened during the week. But these things are valuable. These things are valuable. You're, in, you're passing on aspects of culture that are important in keeping a society functioning. Number three, healthy families teach respect for each other. You know, in Exodus 20, we're told to honor our parents. 
to honor our parents, whether it's children to their adult parents or it's adult to their parents, but to respect each other. Again, when our boys started calling each other names and saying, you're stupid, I had to stop that. Because they weren't showing respect, they were showing disrespect to each other. You know, spouses should never undermine the other spouse. Well, you know, yeah, I'm married, but my wife is really stupid. Or my husband is a real jerk. When, when these things are said in front of children, it's kind of like, whoa, this is totally destructive to a family, a strong family relationship. You know, husbands and wives should be each other's cheerleaders. Think about it. Each other's cheerleaders. You know, I, I really enjoy calling my grandkids. His, his little grandson, he says, Grandpa, you're the greatest grandpa in the world. It doesn't make me feel bad. <laughs> but, you know, we spend a lot of time together, reading and talking and doing things together. Uh, healthy families teach respect for each other. They're, they're pulling for each other. And we need to appreciate the roles that we read about in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the role of men and the role of women, the husband and the wife in a marriage. These are not just uh, interesting ideas. These were placed in the Bible by the God who created us, by the God who designed the marriage and the family relationship. And just because we're a man does not mean we're going to be an effective head of the family. We've got to earn that respect. We've got to learn how to lead in a way that our wives can admire us and vice versa. It's not easy to, do, to submit or to adapt to a man. But if you respect him, you look up to him, then it's going to be a lot easier. And if you are respectable, it's a lot easier. But we have to learn to do what we need to do to be respectful and to be respectable. So healthy families teach respect for others. You know, they don't make snide comments about the sermon when they go home. <laughs> well, you know, he did it again or whatever. You know, the kids will begin looking to the minister the same way if they have roast minister for lunch or dinner every Sabbath. We're not cultivating respect that way if we do that. We're actually undermining a source of authority. And sometimes ministers undermine their own authority. And so we've all got to be careful about these things. Number five, healthy families have a sense, excuse me, number four, healthy families develop a sense of trust. One of the commandments is that we are to not lie. And if we lie, then we undermine a sense of trust. You can turn to Luke chapter 2. It's interesting just to read this and think about it just a little bit. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Talking about Jesus' parents going up to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So here's a 12-year-old boy accompanies his parents up to Jerusalem. It says, when they had finished the days and as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it. 
But supposing him to have been in the company, that is probably with relatives, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, this was not a case of parental neglect. It appears Jesus' parents trusted him because he was responsible. Now, he stayed behind. He was actually in the temple. But apparently his parents had a sense of trust. He did what he was told. He was responsible. In this particular case, he got engrossed in a discussion that was much more important. But the fact is they must have trusted him. God would not have chosen Mary and Joseph to be his parents if they were neglectful people. You know, so building a sense of trust is extremely important between husbands and wives, between parents and children. Healthy families develop a sense of trust and they explain to children the importance of being honest and saying what you mean and meaning what you say. This is a trait of healthy families. Proverbs 22.1, it says, A good name is to be had rather than great riches. You know, a good name comes from being honest. A good name comes from being truthful. And it's a foundational element of strong families. Number five, healthy families have a sense of play and a sense of humor. You know, we, healthy families do things that are fun. I've used this example before, that when the boys were about seven or eight, maybe eight or nine, I set them down one night, one Sabbath, and gave them each a pencil and a piece of paper. I said, go in different rooms. I said, just write down five reasons why you like being a Winnale. I didn't give them choices. <laughs> I gave them one choice. But they each came back after five or ten minutes, and one of the reasons that they both came up with was that being a Winnale was fun. It was fun. Now, why did I say that? Turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. <clears throat> Some guidelines for keeping the Sabbath. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. It says, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, in other words, you don't do your thing on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight. It should be delightful. It should be enjoyable. And for little kids, it should be fun in a right way. And if you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, and honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. When our boys were little, we lived in Pasadena. We used to take them once a month or so, to the Los Angeles County Arboretum on Sabbath morning. It was a big, beautiful area. Peacocks were wandering around, beautiful trees, a waterfall. And we'd take them down there, partly because that was in the morning. We had services in the afternoon. And if they got some exercise, they went to sleep in the afternoon. So that was part of the reason. But the other part was to walk around and explain. God made these trees and put them in Australia. He made these trees and put them in Canada. And he made these peacocks and look at the beautiful feathers and they would feed some ducks and so on. But we put them in a millennial setting and explained this is what it's going to be like in the coming kingdom of God. You know, we didn't make them sit up and take notes uh, until they were ready to do that. I remember one time I went up to give a sermonette and one of the boys was sitting there reading what looked like a comic book. 
It was a Bible comic book, but people across the aisle didn't know that. And I thought, this probably looks really great. I'm up here giving a sermon at my kids reading a comic book. <laughs> but, you know, I went back and sat down, and the boy said, that was a pretty good sermonette, Dad. You changed the introduction, though, from the last time you gave it. <laughs> it was gone in, but we didn't make him. You've got to sit down, shut up, don't move, and enjoy the Sabbath. <laughs> but, you know, I'd watch parents do that. And you watch what happens. But if you make the Sabbath a delight, a special time, you know, my wife would make a special dinner on Friday night. There'd be some candles and little name cards for the kids, and it was a special time. I called the grandkids last night, or they called last night, and I said, what are you guys going to do tomorrow? We're going to go to church. Where are you going to go? We're going to go to two places. And they're not old enough to think, two places. <laughs> It was two places where they would see their friends. If you make the Sabbath a delight, you're passing on a value. If you make it a, a chore, you know, I, I heard a minister speak a number of years ago down in Florida during the time of all the changes. He said the reason God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments was to punish them. I thought, come on. <laughs> But he was serious, or I think he was serious, or he didn't want to lose his job. All of the above, maybe. But if you call the Sabbath a delight, God has a sense of play and a sense of humor. If you look at animals, watch two little puppies. We actually, we had a puppy in the neighbor had a little a cat. And these two would get together and they would actually play with each other. We were in a San Diego Zoo, I think, one time. <laughs> We're standing by the, the monkey cage, and a bunch of these kids were up there making fun at the, I think it was at the chimpanzees. And this chimp, he's getting all frustrated because he sees these people making fun at him. He reaches down, scoops up some droppings, and, <laughs> <laughs> and these kids were surprised. <laughs> and then he goes, ah! You know, animals have a sense of humor, but God created the animals. <laughs> you know, if we can laugh at ourselves when you get into a really difficult problem, realize, you know, I, I messed up. I did this to myself. And just realize that we don't have to be super serious all the time. God has a sense of humor. I mean, look who he's called. <laughs> You know, the weak and the foolish of the world, that's us. We're dumb enough to believe what's in the book. But he can use people who will follow the instructions that are here. And don't come up with 50 or 100 reasons why this is all theory and why it doesn't work or why it shouldn't work. God has a sense of humor, and we need to understand that. <clears throat> if you need a scripture, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 and 28, <laughs> that God is called the foolish of the world. To confound the wise. To confound the wise. How'd you know that? It's in the book. You know, why does your marriage work and mine doesn't? Followed what's in the book. It works. <clears throat> Number six, healthy families have a, a balance of interaction among the members. <clears throat> you can read 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks the body has many parts. 
and each part has a role. If we can understand within families and give credit uh, and show respect for the different roles in the family and learn how to fulfill those roles effectively and realize that they're all important. We all have an important role to play. And, you know, this can be applied even to, you know, working here at headquarters or working with uh, wherever you might work, that everybody has a role to play that's important. And we don't want to put down their role and elevate our own. It only creates problems that way. <clears throat> this balance and interaction today probably has to deal with balancing career and balancing family. If we get overly focused on one or the other, then problems are created. But if we understand that these things, we have to give importance to things in a, in a, in a balanced way. Point number seven, healthy families share leisure time together. They plan leisure time together. Take a day off. Take part of the day off. Do some things that are interesting. Plan activities that are fun, that are stimulating. You take a break from routines. Turn to Mark chapter <clears throat> 6. You know, Jesus understood this. He was calling and training his disciples. But in Mark chapter 6, <clears throat> he had sent the disciples out on a training mission. In verse 30, it says, Then the disciples gathered to Jesus after they had come back from this mission and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. You've been out on a mission. You've done what I've asked you to do. Let's take a break. Let's talk these things over. Let's relax a little bit. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So Christ understood the value of taking a break, planning some R and R, doing some things that are different. <clears throat> and I think within a marriage context, wives like to look forward to things. Now, if you say, honey, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to take a vacation. <laughs> Maybe a bit uh, out of reality. Frustrating. Or if you come home some afternoon and say, we're going to the mountains. Well, I'm not ready. So what? Let's go anyways. Really? It makes things exciting. And I called two of my kids last night and I said, Maybe when I come down to see you, we can go up to Jekyll Island for a week or for a, a couple of days. Of course, my son said, well, Dad, you know, I can't afford it. I said, what if it's on me? His wife says, yay! <laughs> he said, well, Dad, I don't know whether we should. His wife says, leave him at home. We'll go. <laughs> but this is what makes a relationship exciting, to, to plan for some of these things. Sometimes we think, well, my job is so, keeps me so busy and I have to do all these things. Let me see if I can find that paper. Coming back on a flight the other day, I was looking at uh, the Sky Mall, this magazine where it sells things, but it had a picture with a caption underneath it that I thought was really interesting. It's called Priorities and has a picture of a little boy standing beside a body of water. It says, a hundred years from now, it will not matter what my bank account was, 
the sort of house I lived in, or the kind of car I drove. But the world may be a different the world may be different because I was important in the life of a child. <clears throat> and sometimes we have to really give some thought to what really is important. And it means taking a break from time to time. But this is what healthy families do. Point number eight, healthy families exhibit a shared sense of commitment and responsibility. The husband and the wife are committed to making a marriage work. Even when it gets difficult, that commitment is there. They're committed to make it work. Whereas today as well, it's not working, I'm out of here. No, healthy families and healthy societies foster a commitment to make things work. They have a sense of responsibility. I'm the father, I'm the mother, I'm the wife, uh, I'm the husband. We've got to make this work. We've got to work through these situations because of our family, because of our children, because of our example. Just look up the scriptures in Genesis 4, verse 9, Romans 12, verse 10, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. It talks about responsibilities. This is something that's missing from our society today. Point number nine. Healthy families teach a sense of right and wrong, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as bad. Again, people today say, well, it's, it's all your own opinions. If you think it's bad, it's bad. No. If God says it's bad and it's wrong, we need to hang on to that. They teach right from wrong. 1 John 3, 4, it says, sin is the transgression of the law. That's bad. That's wrong. You know, teaching the boys when they were growing up, just some basics. We wanted to teach them that certain things were dangerous. We'd have candles on the table every Friday night. And, of course, they were all excited about them. I remember with both of the boys, I took their hand and just passed it gently through the, 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 the candle. Oh! I said, hot, bad, ouch, don't touch. Yeah. <laughs> It was a controlled experiment in one sense. We said the stove is hot, bad, don't touch. And they didn't go over to those places. But as parents, we have to teach these things. As children get older, as people come into the church, we have to teach certain things are bad, certain things are wrong, certain things should not be done. If society and if our families are going to hold together... In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and this is something we all have to be careful about. Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Judge not, condemn not, that you be not judged. If we know something's wrong and we see somebody doing something, we want to jump up and down and, you know, that's wrong and you need to kick them out of the church and all these other things. You know, sometimes people need time to learn. They don't need us jumping up and down on them. They need time to learn. We need to point out what's right, point out what's wrong, and then let them develop character by learning how to make decisions as opposed to us jumping up and down on people. 
But healthy families teach right and wrong. Healthy churches teach clearly what's right and what's wrong. Proverbs 22, verse 6 talks about train up a child in the way that he should go. Show the child when they're young what's right and what's wrong. Point them to good examples. These are things we have to pass on from one generation to another. And if we do that, then our families will be healthy and our society will become healthy if we transmit this information effectively. Point number 10, healthy families have a strong sense of family with rituals and with traditions. What do you do together just with your family? We had Friday night meals together, and it was a family tradition. When I was teaching out at the college, we usually invite two or three or four other students over on Friday night, that they were part of that family. It wasn't a social thing so much. It was they had to eat, we had to eat, and we talked about the week, but it wasn't kind of a fun and games type of thing. It was an assessment. It was sharing lessons and sharing experiences. But what do you do in your own family for traditions? In the last number of years, we've been getting together with the boys and having a family Thanksgiving together. What do you do? But, But plan these things. These are important where you do things together. You know, we did not celebrate birthdays with the boys when they grew up, but we did acknowledge that they got a year older. And we'd have a meal and ask them what they'd like to have for dinner, but then would sit down and talk about, we really were blessed 10 years ago whenever God added you to our family. And they had a sense of who they were and where they belonged and that they were valuable. But we didn't have a bunch of cakes and and gifts and, and stuff like that, but we did acknowledge the fact you made it through another year. You actually made it through another year. And for little kids, that's a big accomplishment sometimes. You know, with the same amount of teeth that they started with and without too many scra- scrapes and scratches and so on. But we did acknowledge that they were a year older and we made them feel part of our family that way. <clears throat> but what kind of traditions do you have? You can go back again to Luke chapter 2. Jesus was taken to the holy days every year. It was part of the family tradition. They went to the holy days together. The Sabbath can be a family tradition. These are exciting traditions. If you get your kids involved planning for the feast, where would you like to go next year for the feast? Where would you like to stay? What would you like to see while we're there? They're not going to want to miss the feast. But if you've got to go and you can't do this and you can't do that, I'll go. But if they're involved in planning and preparing, becomes exciting for them. Healthy families have this strong sense of rituals and traditions that are positive. Tied in with this, um, number 11, healthy families have a shared religious core. This is extremely important. You know, if you're married outside the church or your mate's not in the church, it's possible to make these things work, but it's much more of a challenge. If you start out on the right foot where you're both pointed in the right direction, it's going to be a lot easier. It's going to be much more enjoyable when you raise your children. And if you're working with the same principles, it's going to go a lot easier than if you have one set of principles and your mate has another sense of principles and you can't agree on everything, then it becomes chaos. It becomes very difficult. But healthy families have a shared religious core. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 6, verse 17 
talks about don't be unequally yoked together. Come out from among them. Be separate. Be different in a right way. Number 11, healthy families, number 12, healthy families respect the privacy of one another. Again, this is this is one that takes some some balance to approach. That uh, we need to respect people's privacy. We need to respect their feelings. But as parents, you can't be blind. Well, I never go into my child's room. Well, you better. <laughs> you better from time to time. You need to know what's going on in that room. You know, when the boys were at home, they kept their doors open. Except when they were getting dressed and undressed and so on, but they they didn't have televisions in their room either, because we wanted to monitor what they saw and what they watched. It wasn't because we wanted to be ogres. We've got to be sensitive to what's going on. The Bible talks about. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's in Micah four four that each person will have their own vine and fig tree. Your private property is important because God can see how we manage it, how we take care of it. And kids should be told that uh, you keep your room clean and you take care of it. I was talking to one of my little granddaughters and she would say, I don't like to keep my room clean. I won't mention any names because she'll probably hear this at some point in time. (laughs) But, you know, it takes effort. It takes work. But if it's rewarded, say, oh, your room looks so nice. They will like to receive that kind of praise. And one of the reasons this marriage came apart where uh, the judge was telling them they had to build a wall was the lady was saying, I had to clean up after my husband, put his socks away and do all this dirty stuff. And she didn't like doing it. She may have tried to find out some of those things before she got married. But we've got to do things, you know, teach these values. Respect privacy, but also be wise, be understanding. Number 13, healthy families value service to others. They serve each other. You know, an attentive husband will notice what he can do to serve his wife. I was reading someplace where President Bush would bring a hot cup of coffee to his wife in bed every morning. He's the President of the United States. I don't know whether that's propaganda or whether it's, it's true, but it sounds good. <laughs> But what can you do to serve your husband or to serve your wife or to do something special for them? What can you do to serve your kids? It'll be helpful for them. What can they do to serve you? It was interesting. Whenever the boys were growing up, we took them with us a couple of times to mow some lawns of some older ladies in one of the congregations that we attended. And I think they have done some of the same things. But these are things that you can do uh, to promote this value of service to each other. You know, we like to be treated as we would like. We, like, we should be treating people like we sh- would like to be treated. And if our children can see us doing things, or our mates can see us doing things, uh, things will just work better. Healthy families value service to each other. Number 14. Healthy families uh, admit and seek help with problems. Sometimes we can get into difficulties and dig really deep holes because we don't want to ask for any advice. I'm going to do it myself. 
And a lot of times, well, go ahead. But if we're willing to ask for help, Proverbs talks about there's safety in a multitude of counsel. There's safety in a multitude of counsel, Proverbs 11, verse 14. If we get into straits, we need to find some people that we can ask for advice. If we're thinking about marriage, ask some people's advice, who you respect, who know the other people involved, and be willing to listen. And sometimes we make up our minds, we ask those people to agree with us, and we don't want any more advice. But healthy families foster this approach of seeking help with problems, looking for advice, finding solutions. I've added a couple more here that did not come with the book. Healthy families are forgiving. Healthy families are forgiving. You can use the example of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Or it could be a prodigal daughter. Or it could be a prodigal mate. Or it could be a prodigal parent. We all make some dumb decisions from time to time. But healthy families are able to forgive. They're able to forgive, especially when there's repentance involved. Healthy families foster this sense of forgiveness, understanding. We all probably should recognize that we need to be forgiven from time to time. If we recognize our need to be forgiven, it's a lot easier to forgive other people. Number 16. I don't know whether that's on your sheet or not. No, I added it after I typed it out. Healthy families are positive. Healthy families are positive. They're optimistic. I was talking with Mr. Partian the other day, and he says, his comment was, you know, there's another problem. I said, no, it's not a problem. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. I think the Chinese word for crisis has something to do with an opportunity as well as a difficulty. It has a double meaning. You know, we can be optimistic or we can be pessimistic. Oh, just so many problems. Could be so many challenges. It's another hurdle to get over. But we can foster this within a family. If mom and dad are like, boy, another problem. This, well, this is never going to work. Or, you know, it could work. How can we make it work? These are, these are values that we foster consciously or unconsciously within the family. Healthy families are, are optimistic. Look at a couple of scriptures and then we'll bring this to a conclusion. Romans 8.28. These are optimistic scriptures, not naive scriptures, but optimistic scriptures. It's based on faith. Romans 8.28, it says, All things, we know, we know that all things. It's not, I think. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, we might think, why, why did this happen today of all days? I didn't need this today. Well, God may have felt we did. And if we start looking for the lessons that we can learn, then it becomes an optimistic thing, a positive thing. 1 Corinthians chapter thir- uh, 10. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> you know, God understands our needs as human beings. 
He understands the advice that we need. Proverbs, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation, no trial has overtaken you except such as is common to, to man. <laughs> Your problems are no more unique than anybody else's. But God is faithful who will allow you to be tested uh, beyond that which will not allow you to be tried or tested above that which you are able. God knows your limitations. And he's not going to allow you to have any trial or temptation that you can't handle with his help. He knows the lessons that we need to learn. But with the temptation, with the trial, we'll also make a way of escape. God, where is it? (laughs) Help me find it today, right now. His answer might be, be patient. (laughs) I will show you. (laughs) You will find it. Uh, But you're going to have to endure a little bit that you may be able to bear it. God is optimistic. He's called us not to fail, but to make it into the kingdom of God. He's called us not to become doorkeepers, but to become kings and priests, teachers in the coming kingdom of God. Brethren, do we recognize the significance of the time in which we are living? We are living in a period of time when the pillars of society are being destroyed, undermined, torn apart. And many people do not understand the significance of what is happening today. But we have been called to prepare for a period of time that is called the restoration of all things. We have been called to recapture true values, to come to an understanding of what makes a society hold together. We've, come, we've been called to learn how to rebuild dysfunctional families, how to recognize what causes dysfunctional families, and how to build them. And with this handout that you've got, I'd suggest that you go over it and ask yourselves, how does this relate to me as an individual? How does this relate to my family? Do I communicate and listen? Do I just communicate? <laughs> or do I just talk? without listening. But use this as a tool to get down over this thing so that you become knowledgeable of what makes strong families, how to make families work. Because we have been called literally to turn the world right side up, to restore a knowledge of true values that will make living on on this earth totally different. Do we understand the significance of the times in which we are living And do you see your calling?